Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solution Center, L3C. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. I'm Nathan Loverich, a legal assistant with SATC Law and one of the hosts of the podcast. And I'm here today with Dr. Maria Nanos, the executive director of the Center for Law and Social Work. Dr. Nanos, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I am really excited to get to talk to you today because I've been doing a little research into your history and you have a really interesting history and and really started off young, kind of just jumping into this and and the things that you were doing when you were younger seem to match up with what you're doing now. Yes. So let's talk about, you know, growing up for you. I, I read that you grew up here in Chicago and you've been here your whole life pretty much? I have. I'm a native Chicagoan, although days like today when it's so cold, I'm not quite sure why we're still here. However, uh, talk to our parents about that, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, I grew up on the north side of Chicago. Um, so what was it like for you growing up in Chicago, just sort of seeing what's around you, the culture, the experience, and and how that led you to your personality and just the way that your work ethic and, and the way you, you know, Nathan, things. it's funny you asked that. I actually was with my sister this weekend and we were taking a walk down memory lane. Um, and I say that my growing up really made me a social worker uh, because I was the oldest kid in the whole neighborhood. Um, we had parishes back then. I grew up in a, in a, parish at St. Gregory. Uh-huh. Might as well talk about that. Some of your listeners may know the North Side. Yeah. Um, and that's when you stayed put, you participated in the community. My parents were very involved with our growing up. My mom stayed at home until my sister, I think until she entered high school. Uh, so we had, my mom was in the mother's club and the student council and she was a Girl Scout leader. And, you know, so we really learned how to work with other people and all the moms would go bowling or go to the racetrack. And I'd get a note from the grammar school saying, pick up all the kids and bring <laughs> them home because moms are all out. So yeah. that was what made me a social worker, I think. The joy of being the oldest child. Yeah, and being in charge. <laughs> and, you know, I watched my mom go to uh, food pantries and we went to uh, old person's homes and she did a lot of that. So that really helped both my sister and I uh, appreciate that, that it was looking out for other people. So I grew up thinking that. I was very uh, athletic, so I'm always looking for a team. I'm not kind of a solo person. Although I don't like things like tennis, I'd rather play basketball or something like that. So it kind of shaped me into entering college and beyond. My mom was really the alpha dog Mm -hmm. in, in in the house, although dad was a very strong. He was the snuggly guy, but you didn't really cross him ever because that was a scary thing. But my mom was also very ahead of her time with equality for boys and girls. And I'm not that old. Yeah. 
but it was equality for boys and girls. She she fought that the girls had the same gym time as boys. This was even before Title IX, mm-hmm. right? This mm-hmm. was in the probably mid-70s or so. Yeah. Um, and she actually bought uh, me a sweatshirt, and I think my sister got one, although she might have just got my hand-me-down because I'm two years older. But um, it said, anything boys can do, girls can do better. Wow. So the message was from back then. She might have had it made all herself because I'm not sure they were publicly available back right. then. There's no Etsy to go no, on. No, <laughs> no, no, no. So, uh, but she was really, um, although embraced her womanhood, her yeah. her being female. Um, you know, she was the one that wore the matching skirt and uh, jacket to church and activities and things, so... Yeah. yeah, so that got us going in this life. That's that's really great. Um, it, it's interesting you mentioned about how this was before Title Title Nine and sort of before the the big push for womanhood and and sort of um, just women in the workplace and, and really taking your your place in leadership. And I think it's easy to forget that this wasn't that long ago. We're not talking like 1900. We're not talking you know, 1950s even. It really wasn't that long ago that these things were really happening and really being fought for by our moms, our grandmothers, so on and so forth. Well, and it's, it's still happening, isn't it? That yeah. there is still a stat out there. I don't know exactly what it is, but that women earn... 60 cents on the dollar of a man today this day and age it's ridiculous yeah um, i actually just learned my friends do uh, a podcast um, just highlighting women in history and i learned just the other day that uh, on wikipedia only 18 percent of biographical articles on wikipedia are about women and really highlighting what very important women in history have done, but mm-hmm. only 18% of those articles are about women, which just really surprised me. But then I thought about it, and I'm like, I shouldn't really be that surprised, yeah. but it was surprising to me to hear that. And even people of color, yeah, you know, like the hidden figures. There's a, a Northwestern University does a, um, it's called One Book, mm-hmm. and all the students and faculty participate in reading a book, and this year they're doing Hidden Figures, which, and I, I saw the movie, I haven't read the book, but how many of these gems just kind of stay in the shadows and never get that kind of attention, which is a shame. Yeah. 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 It's exciting to be part of a time where that's at least being thought of and and being emphasized a little more. Maybe not to the level that we hope or we it should be, mm-hmm. but certainly more so than in the past, I think. And it's exciting to see some of those stories come out and to get to be a part of history in that way. Um, so you're, you're now in college. Did you know going in what you wanted to study? I mean, it's, you're so young going into college. Did you know that this is sort of what I wanted to do or? Did it start out differently? Well, like I said, I had a I had a slower start getting into uh, college. I went to junior colleges here in Chicago mm-hmm. part time because I wanted to 
work and have some money and it was just what I did. Um, not to mention, I kind of played basketball and made people laugh too much in high school, so I didn't get into a lot of colleges, which is a little ironic since I have a PhD today. So I'm what you call a um, late bloomer, maybe, Nathan, um, <laughs> and uh, proud to talk about it now, but at the time was a little rough. Be yeah. that as it may, when I got into a four-year university, uh, social work was just like an old shoe. It was comfortable. Uh, I was pulling A's. I didn't have to think about it. And then getting the, you know, the insight and the theory behind some of the things that I was very interested in um, was important. You know, back to the high school days, I heard a stat um, that one of the common denominators of Fortune 500 women-owned businesses is that they participated in a team sport in high school. And which is kind of ironic. Yeah. <laughs> and that fits which, with what we're talking about, right? Yeah, so absolutely. Being a team player. And so social work was really built on, at least back then, you know, start where the client is, sit back and figure things out. Who else can you bring in to assist? Those kinds of things, which was just easy for me. Yeah. So in your, the young part of your career, one of the things that I was really interested in by your bio is just how young you were starting your career and, and just being the youngest in this field. Mm -hmm. um, so what was it like for you to be so young and to be doing something that was actually pretty big? Right. Yes, it was. Um, so how I kind of stumbled into that uh, starting the career was when I did that field placement in my undergrad, the only desk available. So I was working with um, delinquent youth and having to write social histories on them. So that was the internship. But the only desk available was in the abuse and neglect half of juvenile court in a sex abuse unit, of which I didn't have any experience. I didn't know anything about it. And in the room were five desks, I was the sixth one, and all five of my colleagues were probation officers with abuse and neglect children who were sexually abused. And I just listened, and I admired these people so much. They were, they were smart, and I wanted some of that. I was just hungry for any information I could possibly get my hands on. So I finished the field placement, graduated in August because I was a little bit late, as I mentioned, um, and applied to be a probation officer through juvenile court, through Cook County, uh, got hired and started that January. And they, after my training at juvenile court, they took me into the sex abuse unit, which had never been done before. Usually that was a unit that was a little more specialized and you kind of laterally moved into that unit. So here I was 22 years old wow. and I loved it. I loved the kids. I loved the, I don't know. I'm, I was, I'm the person you want in a crisis. Yeah. I don't get, my face doesn't scrunch up when I hear a horrible story or if I see blood, I could probably do surgery on you. I, you know, I can just kind of kind of how I'm made, I think. So I slid right into this and really loved the kids. The other thing, talk about serendipity and how these things happen. Um, 
the American Camping Association used to give a grant to juvenile court each year. And part of that was to take some of these kids, some of the delinquent kids, some of the sex, sexually abused kids, uh, straight up abuse, um, up to summer camp. And many of these kids never left the city. Mm-hmm. They they never been in a rowboat before. They never experienced these kinds of things. So there was a curriculum that was developed just for the sexually abused kids. And as luck would have it, this is when I was doing my internship, they needed, because it, it was the end of the season and all the camp counselors went home, the court was going to send probation officers with the kids, so that was fine, but they needed a lifeguard. And I happened to have had my lifeguard license or certification. So I was able to go with them up there, and then I really fell in love with these kids because you're really in the thick of it hearing the stories and uh, watching these connections, and I just wanted to be a part of that. So what was really hard about that time for you? I I see the... I know we're, we're, you're listening to us, so you can't see the same faces that I'm seeing, but I see the excitement in your face, and that's really contagious and really great. But what was really hard about life for you and work for you at that time? I certainly went through a period of um, everything in your world gets a little unraveled. Nobody wants to talk about probably the biggest atrocity I think we can think about is abusing a child. Um, So every kid I saw, I thought, oh, my God, I'm sure they're being sexually abused. You know, it was kind of dialing it back. I had to get really good at keeping very specific boundaries on my own life. Um, That was probably the biggest part then. And you're hearing stories that are gut rent. You can't make it up. I mean, some of these things were just horrific that these kids were going through. But I also learned that they got better, that they did survive, that you can survive these experiences. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the way, Nathan, it's it kind of happens uh, to clinicians. You acquire a vibe, I think, that people can tell you just about anything, and it's going to be okay, yeah. and there's hope. And there are things that we can do, and I can help guide you. And we lost some of the kids. Some of the kids ended up not literally lost them, thankfully, that I know of. But, you know, some of them said, thanks, yeah, I'd rather not talk about it. And then they end up in prison or addicted to drugs or whatever. Um, Case in point, I remember uh, I had a group of girls, about six of them, and I called Planned Parenthood and asked them to come in to talk to the kids about STDs and um, whatever they could inform these girls, right? So we were trying to give them the information that they could make good decisions for themselves. Um, So Planned Parenthood came in and every, in fact, that's where I first, the one and only time, I don't know if any of your listeners can uh, identify with this. They had a silicone breast, and they they passed it around, and it had a lump in it. So you could actually feel what it would feel like if you had a lump in your breast wow. or somebody else's, I guess, yeah. which was really I, – I still remember that. That was – sheesh, that was probably in 1990, 89, 90 that 
I, I actually felt it. So the kids did too. And then they handed them handfuls of condoms. And this was pre-HIV. This was, you know, we were worried about pregnancy, you know, and some STDs, uh, most of which you could take care of with antibiotic. But case in point, so all of these kids, I really talked to them about pregnancy and birth control, and, and then somebody would get pregnant. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, I failed. This was horrible. I should have done it. No, you know what? It's not about me. Yeah. That's the one thing that you do learn that I learned early on. This is not about me because it could have been six pregnancies, but it was just one. So we have to think of it in a way that we can only do so much. So I learned that early on too. Yeah. And I would assume that for that one pregnancy that the young mother would at least feel like she's got some community around her. And maybe if that had happened and they weren't in your program, they would be alone. But because they had gotten to know you and you had worked with them and, and really supported them in other areas, kind of knowing, okay, it's still going to be okay. Right. Like, yes, this happened, not ideal, but it's still going to be okay. Absolutely, yeah. And and now I, I preach a different, uh, a different song that I'm all about adoption. Yeah. And, you know, these young girls who, women sometimes, but mm, they're very young, yeah. uh, there's an option out there for adoption. Now, we can get that later. But, you know, that was that was way back. That was when I was at juvenile court, my first job. I I didn't miss a day. I, you know, and I talk about that now. As a student intern, I did everything. I volunteered for everything. I couldn't wait to go to a training. I went to every training I could get my hands on. I read everything I could. Then when I went into my master's program at the University of Illinois, uh, to get an MSW, at the time, um, you couldn't stay employed with the court system to do an inter to do your master's field placement. So I had to resign. I had to leave, um, and I'm glad I did. Although my colleagues today are retiring uh, in their early 50s, <laughs> and I'm going to be working for another 20. But whatever, that's yeah. just how life kind of unfolded for me. Um, but my MSW uh, brought me to a different level of my career because I got more involved in the child sexual abuse field. So I was really way ahead of the game. Yeah. And being ahead of the game, sort of seeing the future of your field and being a big part of that, for you, did that put some sort of pressure on you to to do really well, to do maybe better than what other people were doing or to do better for, obviously you always wanted to do better for the kids, but did you feel the pressure of being sort of on the front end of this battle that's being You know, fought? when I think about it now, I think about, wow, that must have been uh, stressful. It wasn't. I just loved it so much. I didn't think about myself as younger. I had to try harder. Um, I was just with a group of people that um, they were pioneers, and I was grateful and privileged to be a part of it. I never forgot that part of it. That was when, in Chicago at least, um, when kids would make a disclosure of child sexual abuse, typically what would happen was, let's say it was um, a, a young, a kid 
telling a teacher something that they got touched. Um, so the teacher would tell the principal. The principal would talk to the kid. Principal would send the kid to the school social worker. School social worker would talk to that kid. Then they would call the police. Police officer might come talk to the child. Maybe a youth officer would come. Then somebody would say, uh, bring him to the hospital, which 99 out of 100 times, not a good idea. Um, but then the hospital would talk to them, and the hospital social worker might talk to the child. Then DCFS gets involved and does an interview, and at which point the kid has told the story. It was on average nine times that the kid had to tell the story. And by the end of that time, they either are so fatigued they don't want to talk about it, they got the message that they shouldn't talk about it, that something somebody was going to get in trouble, and very often it was a loved relative and they didn't want uncle louie to go to jail they just wanted him to stop touching them so that was very confusing for children back then so there was a group that organized um through the children's advocacy centers that are across the country mm -hmm. uh, to train people to do victim sensitive interviewing it's called a vsi we called it VSIP, Victim Sensitive Interview Program. Uh, and I was one of about a dozen people who were trained to do these interviews with children who made outcries of child sexual abuse. Uh, so I, again, I was way young for the group of my colleagues, only because that seat was empty, because I went right from training into that yeah. unit at juvenile court, right. um, and then got all this training. So I was a forensic interviewer, started at La Rabita Hospital. Um, so when kids would, they organized these victim sensitive interviews, that an interviewer would talk to the kid, and behind a two-way mirror, I'm, I'm a hand talker. You, you people can't see this, but I'm drawing with my hand a two-way mirror and a state's attorney, police officer, and DCFS worker would watch the interview. So now you have these four professionals. It was a coordinated interview. So that child had to tell the story one time and everybody else could see and hear exactly what the child said which was better for prosecution if that was going to happen, which was better for DCFS worker because they had their own burden of things. Um, and as an interviewer, I loved it because you, um, you didn't get a lot of information because you can't hear a lot of information when you're going to interview a child. You had to learn how to ask questions that weren't leading questions. Like if I'm looking at Nathan and, and nodding to him, which I'm doing right now, and say, this is the best interview you've ever had, isn't it? <laughs> he'd nod with me before he answered the question. He'd say yes. So we learned how to not do that with kids and try to get uh, a very genuine answer and, and a story. And if we think about it, we barely talk about intimate things with our best friends, much less a child to a stranger. Yeah. So you really had to be good at engaging kids immediately and have them disclose the worst thing that's ever happened to them, basically. So I had to be really good at it. Yeah. And, and as you're talking, just hearing about things that you're doing, I mean, it's, it's really heavy stuff, but it's obvious that when you're sort of made, created, designed to do this, 
you have a capacity to handle this heavy stuff and to deal with it in in a way that I'm sure you get support from a lot of different areas and, and you do things outside of work and outside of um, all these things that you're doing to sort of alleviate that and direct that in a healthy way. Yeah. it's. It, I had to be really good at compartmentalizing. Um, I, And there was a time when everything got mishmashed. You know, I had my kids in my group that I mentioned that we took to camp. Uh, you know, one of them would run away and call me at 11 o'clock and I'm jumping out of the bed to go... I wouldn't do that today. But that was a 20-year-old thing. You know, that was a 20-something. That's when you got really involved and thought that you were going to save the whole... No, that was not the situation. Um, But you learn these skills right away. And as I mentioned, I think if you can... Social workers especially, if they can learn how to talk to kids about a horrible experience, you can talk to people about anything. Yeah. So thankfully, I got that start. And it carried with me um, specifically to my work with sexual assault survivors. Uh, So these are, so I continued this work. I was clinical director for an agency that just worked with child sexual abuse. So I was supervising people and hiring people, mentoring interns, et cetera, et cetera, for a nice chunk of my career. Uh, And then I wanted to get into the business of the business um, and moved into more management kind of positions. But along the way, I really wanted to continue education. My dad was a graduate of Northwestern University uh, on the GI Bill. Actually, he was a World War II vet, uh, and he graduated later in his life after service, but he was a smart guy. Uh, so thankfully, I got some of my DNA from my dad, and I always wanted to continue education. So it sounds like a, cra- a crazy crossroad, but I, I thought, do I want to learn to speak Greek? Because my dad and his sister were fluent Greek, and I always was interested in that. Or do I want to get a PhD? <laughs> so I thought, you know, and I also contemplated med school because I always loved the medical part. Um but that was going to be a whole lot more school, and that was I was thinking about that when I was about 30, and I thought, ah, that might be a little long. So opted for a Ph.D. Uh, in clinical social work, and we have an institution here in Chicago. It's called the Institute for Clinical Social Work. It's a certified um, institution of its own right, and you can get a Ph.D. in clinical social work. I didn't want to get a PsyD, which is a doctorate in psychology. I'm not a psychologist. Mm-hmm. I'm a social worker. So as I started that, I, um, because of my career thus far, I started that program, I think when I was about maybe 30 years old, taking a class here and again, which is that, that school set up for the working person, which is really nice and it was convenient. Um, but they also had internships that they needed fulfilled. So somebody called up and said, we need somebody to work with this woman named Ann Bent, that she started this agency called Porchlight Counseling. Actually, it was called Ann's Home in the beginning, and it was for college students who were sexually assaulted on college campus. And did anybody at the Institute for Clinical Social Work 
want to work with this population. And I said, me, 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 I'll do it. So I met with Anne. And so that was part of my, uh, it was a very rigorous clinical program. So some of that took the, you know, took the place of one of my, um, some of my field work. So I met Anne and started working with the college student who was sexually assaulted on college campuses and maintained a friendship and relationship with Anne. That started in 2003 or four, I believe. Um, and that connects nicely with today as I sit in front of you because Porchlight Counseling Services is now a program of the Center for Law and Social Work of which I am the executive director. Yeah, and so let's talk about the Center for Law and Social Work because this is a this is a personal thing for me in some ways because I actually was in the DCFS system when mm. I was young. Um, and so, you know, too young to really remember that, to really be like, oh, this was what it was like to be in foster care, but had tremendous uh, foster parents who eventually adopted me. And so... I always feel very close to your mission and very close to the work that, that you do and have been incredibly uh, honored to be able to be at the gala um, that we'll talk about in a bit, uh, about three or four times now. And I, I think you do such great work, but tell us about the center and I guess where it came from and, and sort of the heart behind what the organization is. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk to. But ladies and gentlemen listening, meet our new speaker next year at our event. See, you told me that, Nathan. Now I'm gonna now you're coming. That's it. Okay, so I'm glad I know that information. And we'll talk off off air about yeah. your experience. Uh, anyway, so the Center for Law and Social Work started in two thousand four. And any Chicagoans listening who are in child welfare, we had fifty two thousand kids in foster care in the early nineties. Um, largely because kids were taken into care if there were um, children born positive to substances. Kids were, auto babies were automatically taken into state custody and then parents had to get on a service plan to get the children back. So we had 52,000 kids in care over a period of time. Uh, Illinois is and was last in getting kids returned home unfortunately, which is a whole other podcast we'll discuss at some <laughs> point. Um, but the Center for Law and Social Work was developed because many relatives, so we had 52,000 kids in care, and the relatives were adopting, getting guardianship of their relatives, their kids, and that population shrunk over the years. So today we have about 15,000 kids in care, youth in care, but what was happening was the older caregiver was passing away or becoming disabled or couldn't yeah. take care of these kids anymore. So then the biggest population of kids coming back to DCFS were teenagers. Then they were really hard to place, and we didn't do a good job taking care of our teenagers. So Dana Corman, who started the Center for Law and Social Work in 2003, was asked to start the agency to provide a backup plan for the adoptive parent. So these are kids who were in foster care, got adopted by a relative, 
the relative got too old or something happened and they passed away or they so what what a standby adoption is is me saying Nathan, I want you to take my kids in the event I die. Will you be willing to do that? And you say, sure, I will. So you and I go to court. The judge says, are you willing to take these kids if the parent is unable? And you say, yes. We put it on the book, so we hope it never. we never have to execute it. But if we do have to execute it, it's seamless. So anything my kids get from an inheritance, from property, from life insurance policy, whatever it is, will seamlessly go to the person. Uh, that law actually was authored by people in Chicago um, around the HIV crisis. So what happened was when HIV was uh, killing people, especially women who were single mothers, they had nobody to leave their kids to. So these standby adoptions were set up with them in mind. So we use them for older people. You can use them for anybody. Most of the people that I know, I encourage them to get a standby, especially if you're a single parent, because you get to pick who your child is going to live with the rest of their life. And there's no question, there's no problem, and it's just, it's irreversible. So that's how the center started. Dana had the agency from 2003 until 2007, when she actually, I was working for DCFS at the time in investigations, and I left that because I would go pretty much stark raving mad if I stayed uh, with, with the department any longer, and I already had enough gray hair as it was, so I needed to, to make a move. And Dana actually called me and said, I am thinking about retiring. I think you should be my successor. And I thought, wow, that's big shoes to fill. Sure, why not? You know, I kind of rise to the occasion. So met with Dana and I thought, I know child welfare. I've been doing this for the last 20 years or so. Yeah. And I couldn't believe how much I didn't know mm -hmm. about the post adoption and post guardianship situations that families were in. Um, which is a whole other story, but it was a learning curve. Dana stayed uh, available and on board for about an hour and a half, about a year and a half. Uh, it felt like an hour and a half. Um, yeah. At which point I became the executive director in uh, 2010. And we have successfully moved from, uh, Dana had a grant from DCFS that was a $350,000 grant. Um, and I sit here today, a week away of getting a signed contract that we will be a $2 million, a $2.1 million uh, agency and work with those children and families. So I'm really uh, proud of that work yeah. because it has been a lot of work. Yeah. And just continuing on with what someone else had kind of started and right. just saying, I'm going to honor your legacy by pushing it to the next level. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, she, she had the vision and started the agency, uh, and I was really blessed and lucky enough to be able to flex our muscle a little bit. So we expanded into, we, have, we take all the death cases here in Illinois. If mm -hmm. a adoptive parent or guardian dies, 
we take the case and help. You have to rewrite everything, rewrite yeah. a subsidy, rewrite the home study, do background checks on the person who might take custody of this this child. We do educational advocacy. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we fill a lot of holes that the department um, is either, either overwhelmed doing or um, those those departments have closed yeah. uh, with, with them. So we are doing a lot of really good work. Uh, another program that I acquired last October is adoption listing. So we actually have our workers who meet all the kids who are available for adoption, and we try to connect them with families who have their license, and we try to hook, make those relationships so kids can have a forever home. So that's another really exciting thing we do. And then I mentioned earlier, part of our counseling program, so we do some sessions when there is a death in the family, we can provide some therapy for the families during that loss. Mm -hmm. And I expanded our counseling program into taking on Porchlight Counseling, which, you know, just because I'm the executive director, Mm -hmm. I love that work and I was a part of it since 2003, I think it was 2004 actually. Um, And I had been talking to Anne, who was the founder, she was the executive director and then a board member, and I said, you know, let's bring Porchlight into the Center for Law and Social Work. We have the infrastructure, we have the bandwidth, I've got a great marketing department. Um, Back to my high school days, our uh, associate director today, uh, her name is Ruth McMahon, was a former high school friend of mine uh, that we were actually lab partners, sophomores. Now, we didn't hang together too, too much. We certainly knew each other and liked each other. Um, I was more with the athletes, and she was with the smarty pants kids. And, you know, for fun, she would hang out with her friends and watch Channel 11 things. But then, you know, we, we connected at a few parties as well. Yeah. <laughs> but And we connected later in life, um, and she's a brilliant marketing person and it's not about hiring her because we went to school together it's hiring her because she is brilliant and has brought so much to the agency so she's our associate director and i keep saying to her when i'm done with this it's all yours it would be great the agency would be lucky to have her and we are lucky to have her so with that i actually talked to ruth about how would you bring in Porchlight Counseling, this was before we hired her. She was actually between jobs, and she had a long career at um, Trilogy. But that's how we kind of started talking. And you wouldn't think assault on college campus and adoption and guardianship connects, and it basically doesn't. But (laughs) here we are. Uh, We're really excited about that program. Um, So all the... All the fundraising that we do, sometimes we have Porchlight-specific fundraisers. The big event splits that, anything that we get to all of our programs, uh, which is really exciting. Because the grants that take care of the families involved with DCFS, that's a grant. But there are so many more families that aren't involved with DCFS who have custody of their kids, and nobody thinks about that. In fact, I heard just the other day, and those of you who come to our event, we were filming, we do a video, as you know, Nathan, Mm -hmm. every event that they're real live families. 
This is a lovely couple. They couldn't have children. Um, they live in Aurora area or Oswego area. And there was a young person who had a baby. She just wasn't interested in being a mom and basically gave her infant to them. And they raised this baby till he was three and a half. He would visit the family. She would visit the family here and again. Um, and then they did not have any legal custody. So what happened was the birth mother connected with her birth mother who lived in, I think it was South Carolina, and went to their house and picked the baby up and took this three-and-a-half-year-old kid and said, my mom's going to help me, and thanks, and left, which they were heartbroken and had to grieve that so badly. Um, and if you don't have, I said, just, it's case in point how you you just have to have some kind of custody yeah. because they had no leg to stand on. They're not, just because you're taking care of the baby doesn't mean you legally have any rights to the baby. Similarly with, you mentioned LGBT community, I'm hopefully when I get an eighth date of the week, I want to um, market to the same sex couples who are having children, which is lovely. We see so many more people, men, men, it's a whole lot harder, obviously, but uh, women who are having babies, their spouse, if they're if they're legally married, doesn't mean that they will have any custody of that child. Wow. So we call that a second parent adoption. Um, and I want a big campaign to protect families because if the birth mother passes or the birth father, right, because those situations happen, the even if you're legally married, you don't have custody automatically. So that's another area. Again, when I get the eighth day of the week, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna take care of that. And I mean, everything that you're talking about and everything that you've shared with us is about protecting, first of all, kids and also families. And I think that it's really motivating and inspiring to see that the heart of it all is about protecting the kids and it's about doing what's best and what's right for the people who love these kids. Yes. And for you, what does it mean to be a part of something that is keeping families together, that is keeping kids safe and giving them opportunities for the future that they may not have had without you guys as a part of their lives? Well, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. It basically is what keeps me waking up every day to do this work. Mm -hmm. I love my job. I do. I... A lot of people, sadly, don't like what they do, um, but it's because of that. Every single day, our staff, who are fabulous, those of you who come to the event, I want you to meet everybody and say hi, because they really do change lives. Our little tagline on our Impact Gala, which again is April the 11th, is preserving families, providing hope, and protecting lives. And that encompasses every single thing that we do. Yeah. Um, another program that we started that moves away from the children into more adults is um, providing adult guardianship for special needs youth who turn 18 who need an adult guardian because they're legally 18. So that's another huge group. We're getting lots of referrals. We have money from DCFS 
to pay for those kids who are in DCFS care. There's so many other people who have adult children who are disabled in some way who aren't going to be able to take care of themselves financially or otherwise. But that's another group that it's exciting to um, be able to work on these things. Our social workers and adoption listing staff are fabulous. We have really good, loyal people. Uh, our agency, I try to, it's, it's kind of the old, I go back to my roots, it's do unto others, right? I treat people with respect, uh, encourage them, call them to the carpet if something's wrong. Um, I can be a mama bear <laughs> and I can be the, you know, the lion, but I think, I think it works. So yeah. far it works. I like to say we're the little guy and we are a little guy in a big pond. A lot of the social service agencies, human service agencies have closed with no budget for the state for three years or whatever that was. Right. You know, my last name is Nanos, which means fast. Nano, right? Mm-hmm. I, I like to say we're small and fast, and I, that's what we do. We're yeah. small and mighty, um, and we just keep moving forward, and it's really about the kids. And it's really exciting that we're expanding because we can help so many more kids. We're going to extend our services throughout the state of Illinois. That's what that expansion is going to look like. So we'll have an office, hopefully, in um, Springfield. So anybody listening down in Springfield, come <laughs> on and visit. Um and it's just, it's really exciting. There's no reason why these services can't replicate over each state in the union, especially the Porchlight services. Uh, Porchlight, just kind of in a nutshell, is finding clinicians across the city who are willing to take a student for $35 an hour. Wow. So it's kind of the therapist charity, a little give back, and they get to treat these kids all over. Um, we have Students from Loyola and Northwestern, U of I, U of C, a lot from Columbia these days. So anybody listening who wants to be, who knows somebody who's a therapist who can work with sexual assault, give me a call. Yeah. Our website is, uh, well, it's clsw.org. So you can take a look, uh, find me. I always vet out the therapist. I want to make, I got to weed them all out. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not willing to let anybody else do that one, but I yeah. want to make sure that our students are connecting with therapists who know what they're doing, basically. Um, So that's another opportunity. Have there been things that you've wanted to do or opportunities that people have brought to you or the CLSW that are really good things that are maybe helpful things, but you just haven't been able to do because they don't either maybe fit under your umbrella, they don't kind of fit your mission or resources or whatever, reasons there might be out there have been have there been those things where it's like that's really good but we just can't do that right now well sadly it's providing services to families that are not covered under a grant Mm -hmm. so it's really resources Mm -hmm. every penny we can get donated we put to we put in a literally in a separate bank account. So when the grandmother called, we just a couple of weeks ago, I heard about a case that the grandmother called up and said, I have my three grandkids. Her daughter ran off with the military man is now living in Texas. She's with these three because she was in college. And she just said, Mom, will you keep them for a while and then forgot to come back. 
And she says, I've depleted my savings. I need help. And I thought, you need to get guardianship number one so you can make legal decisions for them. If one of those kids splits their chin open, you can't sign permission because you're not the legal parent, not to mention any services for daycare and things like that. So it's really what kills me is when we don't have enough um, funding or that bank account gets too low, I have to turn people down. And we turn people down all the time. Mm -hmm. That's heartbreaking. Because like the, the family who... The kid, the three and a half year old kid got taken away from these parents and the only bed he ever slept in in his life. It's just, it's unconscionable. So it's really resources and being able to serve the people that, that we can. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and I think that with what you do and with what your staff does, you just kind of have to say, okay, we're going to charge forth with what we can and we're going to do what we can with what we have. And and I feel like with the people that I've met there, they're always about, we're going to do the best job that we can with what we have and we're going to be about the most amount of people. And I mean, just really, if you do get the opportunity to, to meet anyone at the CLSW or to go to the gala, I mean, these are people who just really are saying... I'm 100% in this. I'm going to do what I can with what we have. And, you know, we're just going to put our heads down and, and go forward. Yeah, we get we get a lot of calls um, because I think people in the it, on the Internet, they say, um, I have my grandchildren. I don't know what to do or something. And then our name pops up. So they call for all mm -hmm. kinds of things, um, whether it's child support or things that we don't have any experience with. Um, but we make it our business to find that resource for the people, um, make it available to them. I hear my staff talking to people on the phone that they don't know, and they say, you know, if that doesn't work, call me back, and we'll see if we can find you something else. Which, sadly, because we have a human answering the phone, we're rock stars, yeah. right? Yeah. Because we answer a call or return a call, in a timely amount of time, that didn't sound right, timely amount of time, but you know what I mean. Yeah. You're a rock star, which is pathetic, but that's one of my my things. Do not let phones go into voicemail. There's an institutional transference to be a little, you know, a, a talk and shop a little bit, but if somebody calls for one of our social workers, one of our lawyers can answer a question for them mm. if it's something simple. Um, so we try to take care of people that way. And it just, little by little, it just shows. Yeah. And we, we're, we're not Sisyphus anymore. We're not getting pushing the boulder and getting it rolled. We're the little snowball, and we just keep <laughs> pushing it down the hill so yeah. we can gather some momentum and some steam. And the more people that know about it, about these services, about the work, the more support we may get and the more we really can help other people. Because it's me, yeah. and we're small. Your contribution doesn't go to my, uh, I wish, my bookkeeping department <laughs> because it doesn't, it doesn't exist. Yeah. We're 22 people, and you make a donation to me, that's going to go right into the family. And, yeah. and, we, and with social media, we got a really great uh, social media person right now who's really pushing that agenda. So you can see where your dollars go. So you make a donation, and that's where it's going to go. Yeah. So that's really important. Yeah, for it, people these days, I think. 
it's funny you say we're 22 people and here I am thinking you have like 200 people right. with all the things right. that you do. And well, I'm like, we might wow, at 22 some point. people. Yeah. No, we're 22. So uh, similarly, I'm also the handyman. I fix all the <laughs> locks. Sometimes empty the garbage. You know, it's uh, it, and that's what, you know, we replicate a little family, so to speak yeah. with. And we spend more time with each other than at home. Right? Don't we all do? Yeah. So you, you really should like your people. <laughs> I think I, I hire well. I hire good people, but I also hire for the culture of our agency and, and what that might feel and look like. Yeah. And we're female-dominated, largely because social workers are um, mostly female. But we do have, we have one boy. <laughs> we're working on it. <laughs> we're working on it. Yeah. So I think that there are probably a lot of people listening who say, that's really cool, and I would love to get more information. I'd love to get to be a part of that. You mentioned the website, clsw.org. That's a great place to start to just find out a little more about what you do and about the opportunities that are out there. But I want to talk a little bit before we wrap up here about the Impact Gala. This is your annual fundraiser, your annual gala, where you do a lot of things. It's a lot of fun just going there, you have the auctions, you have the wine poll, you have, you get to actually meet some of the people who have been use, utilizing your resources and who have been a part of your family. You get to meet the staff and obviously Dr. Nanos and really, really interesting, really fun event that supports a great organization. And so Tell me, are there still ways for people to buy tickets? Are there tickets available for the gala? Yes. Um, yes, so there are definitely tickets available, uh, volunteer opportunities. I mentioned that I teach at Loyola University, so most of my students will kind of uh, volunteer. I say kind of because, you know, they're former students, so hopefully they'll show up. But yeah. if anybody <laughs> wants um, to volunteer, we always need some help. And where else can you go for an open bar all night, uh, a full four or five course dinner, little entertainment? You get it's a good cost for 150 bucks. Yeah. Right. So join me. It's really it is a lot of fun. Um, the families in the video are present. In fact, the the couple that I mentioned, whose three and a half year old was taken. Because of that experience, they got their license, and they're one of our families that we interviewed on tape. So we said, you are invited. You're invited to bring the kids. She's got three boys, and she said, are you kidding? Hecky, no, I'm coming by myself. Me and my husband are coming. Leave those kids at home. So you won't meet the kids, at least with that family, but you'll meet the, the parents. So it's we have a couple of awardees who are dynamic in this field, um, uh, Pamela Sherrod, who did a um, her video, her movie, a documentary is called The G-Force, which is Grandparents Raising Grandchildren, of which I was interviewed uh, for that movie. So that's hopefully going to gain some momentum. And Julie Somolinsky, uh, she is a dynamic supporter of sexual assault. She actually helped um, with the film The Hunting Ground, which was really a huge impact. So she's a dynamic, lovely person who's going to uh, receive that award, too. So they'll have some good words to say. That gala is Thursday, April 11th, starts at 5.30 p.m. 
As uh, Dr. Nanos mentioned, tickets are $150 and still available. Make sure you go online and get yours. Happens at Galleria Marchetti, which is a beautiful venue. I can't believe that you got that venue because it's just amazing. I mean, you look at it and you say, man, this looks nice. It just looks beautiful. And so certainly a great time and a great opportunity to support an organization that just wants to protect kids and families. And so if you are interested in that, please visit clsw.org and uh, look at the volunteer opportunities or the opportunities to purchase tickets or even a table and bring nine of your best friends to that because they're doing great work. Well, Dr. Nanos, I want to leave our listeners with one last thought. If you could tell them anything, whether it's about being a social worker, whether it's about the work that you do with CLSW, if you could tell listeners anything, this is your opportunity. What is your, your closing thought here to the Bridging Chicago listeners? Well, how much time do I have left? <laughs> um, I would just say thank you for listening. Uh, those of you who are interested in this, you know, when I talk about my work, people will always kind of their eyes get big and say, oh, I know somebody who might be able to benefit from these services. Send them along, and if we can't help them, we'll find somebody who can help. And I, I love the quote from Maya Angelou um, that says, you might not remember what I did you might not remember what I said, but I hope you remember the way I made you feel. Mm-hmm. And as a clinician, as a social worker, as a human being, if you were moved today by this podcast, um, anything you could do to help, even if you just send us some good vibes, that's great. Sending us a check is even better. <laughs> uh, and whatever you want to donate, maybe put a zero on it, and you know everything's tax deductible. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great having you and getting a chance to catch up and hear about what you're doing and what the staff at the CLSW are doing. Uh, Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. This episode of Bridging Chicago, as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. You can email us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. 
All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to for use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.